Lord Jesus, you above all know the frailty of this vessel, the earthen weakness of who I am. And I pray that you would now just flow through um, like living water and speak to us and give us ears to hear exactly what you would speak into each of our lives this weekend for your kingdom's sake. We trust you for it and expect you to speak, Lord Jesus, in spite of ourselves, all of us, whatever situation we walk through the door with. um, We give this night to you in expectation and joy and thankfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Okay, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for asking us. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. And um, I want to just start by giving you a kind of rough plan for the weekend so you know what to expect, know what's coming. Tonight we're going to introduce the subject, um, and I'll share a bit of my own story, why the topic has been engaging for us. And then kind of step back and give you a big bird's eye picture of the scripture story that helps us begin to make sense of our own stories or maybe give up trying to make sense of our own stories. That's what the whiteboard is here for, is to help me tell you that great big story. Then tomorrow, I will continue um, what we begin tonight with some specific, specific suggestions to kind of give you traction, I hope, in, um, uh, in figuring out what a plan A life and a plan B world looks like, um, considering these things. And then Neil will give us a different angle um, uh, in the second half of the morning on the trials that we face and the plan B-ness of our lives. And then we'll be trading it off for the rest of the weekend. But um, let me start by giving you a little history on, on this, this title It's a hard subject because plan A and plan B are not exactly precise theological terms. Um, But we're going to try to address biblically what those words signify to us. Um, But I want to say right at the outset that there's room for debate about um, what we'll say. And we're really happy to... um, have you take us on, or we hope you'll have some spirited discussion among yourselves about the things that we're saying. So um, don't hesitate to kind of duke it out with us and each other. Um, How it came about is that I was asked to... um, to come in last minute a number of years ago as a retreat speaker for a retreat that was already planned on the road like this big church ready to go. And at the last minute, the speaker had some kind of crisis and the title had already been decided. And the title was Living a Plan A Life in a Plan B World. And so I had 24 hours to, um, you know, to make it fit. Uh, I mean, they said, you can throw this out and do something else, but I was actually kind of engaged by it, and it hooked a lot of things that that I'm passionate about, and so so I decided to do it. Um, There's a little irony in that, since I was their plan B for the weekend, but, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) 
but it was all right. But I think it's, it's remarkably engaging. We've discovered that it's remarkably engaging. Don't we all suspect or fear that maybe our lives are kind of in plan B mode? Um, you know, uh, that we're missing the point or living with second best in some way or another? It seems like the subject touches the deepest questions we have about our lives. Why am I on the earth anyway? When my life is over, will it matter that I lived? Are things going the way they were supposed to go for me in my life? What about things that cause hurt or confusion or guilt? Has my path gone all wrong? And is it my fault? Can I find my way back? There are a few different causes for our sort of plan B sense of derailment. Things done to us by others, things we've done or choices we've made that we may now actually question or regret, catastrophic things, illness and losses that we had no control over at all. And maybe... Maybe what speaks to most of us is disappointed expectations, things we thought would happen that didn't quite roll out the way we expected them to. How do we understand or interpret the evidence of things that seem to have gone wrong or things which disappoint? Where was God when those things happened or actually failed to happen or are failing to happen right now? Is God really in control? And if he is, is he good? Could he really be good given this or this, whatever it is, you name it? To use theological language, how do we live a faithful life in a fallen world, especially in the face of suffering or our disappointments? You may be in the middle of what feels like some plan B to you right now with no happy ending in sight. It helps, it matters to interpret the present with faith in the God who's Lord of all, even even Lord of our disasters, um, including our self-made disasters. I love the quote. Page 20 is kind of where we're going to be 2021 and 22 uh, for this evening. And at the bottom, there's this wonderful, wonderful thing C.S. Lewis says, we ride with our backs to the engine. We have no notion of what stage in the journey we have reached. A story is precisely the sort of thing that cannot be understood till you have heard the whole of it. So I agree with Lewis. There's a sense in which Maybe trying to make sense of the facts on the ground um, uh, is is not a a useful enterprise, and we're going to look at that. And if not, how do we interpret the evidence of the things that don't look right, don't look like they're fitting? Um, So uh, there's a woman that we know who um, became a college professor, but in her first college class... Uh, I think it was a philosophy class or an English class, she sat down and her professor asked the class, How, raise your hand if you believe that your life has plot. And she raised her hand. And, and then she turned around and she was the only one in the room with her hand up. 
And everybody spent the rest of the semester taking her on over that sense she had that her life had to have a plot. So what do you think? Is there a plot? It, does your life have a specific plot? Is that, yeah, yeah, okay, vote. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Does your life have a plot? What do the scriptures say about that? Do the scriptures have a plot, a big plot? So we're going to look at, um, at that question. It's kind of easy to believe, like we find it easy to believe there was some sort of plot at foot when, when Neil was in the back of the room and I was in the front of the room and, I, you know, about the good stuff, the good stuff is easy to believe that the Lord has a plot in. But what about this, the darker parts? Did God write that part in? Did he allow it? Why? How could he have? This weekend we'll be wrestling together with two primary questions. How do we interpret what has brought us heartache or disappointment? Our trials. How does God want us to see the plan B-ness of our lives? And two, how do we get to plan A and live in it? The scriptures from the beginning to the end speak of discipleship in directional terms. To follow God is to walk on his path, to keep on his way, or to travel on his road. And everyone from the beginning of the story to the end is called to do that. Abraham, Moses, um, all the Old Testament characters were called to walk in God's ways. Jeremiah says this, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. You will find rest for your souls. I.e., look for the right road and take it. To be a disciple is to follow God on his path. And people are naturally bad at it. Then Jesus arrives on the scene and declares himself to be the way, to be the path, to be the road on which we travel. And we are um, redeemed by him and we follow him. He guides us on his way. But he also makes it clear that to follow him will involve some relinquishments and some sorrows. Walking on his road will mean sharing in his suffering, temptations, sacrificial love, walking after him through the things that he had to walk through. And the way we experience and understand those challenges can make the difference between a plan A and a plan B life. Um, I want to give you a few uh, scenes from my story just to show you how I approach the subject and then, um, and then move on to the, to the bigger story of the scriptures and what that has to say about our own plot. Um, so the first scene is ancient history, and the second is slightly more recent. I went to boarding school after um, a, a childhood not far away from here in Sewickley, Pennsylvania, where in the 60s there were lots of churches and, and no gospel that I could hear anywhere. Um, so I went to a mainline church, and I was a searching person for a lot of reasons, and um, and I didn't get it. I didn't hear it. Maybe somebody was preaching it, but it never computed to me. So off I went to boarding school, 
And I met a group of Christians who talked about God in a way that I'd never heard anyone speak about God before. Like he was a person, like he had a specific interest and love in me and explaining the the cross. And I jumped in to the kingdom. I didn't ask any questions. You mean it's true? You mean I'm in? It's done already? I'm in. Show me where to sign. I mean, I just jumped. Because I'd been looking for the Lord in many ways all my life. Um, so I graduated, um, and, and was encouraged by my mentors at Westminster Presbyterian Seminary in Philadelphia to go to Labrie and study with Dr. Francis Schaeffer, which I did. I got on the plane in, in, um, my world at that time. It was expected that I would have a debutante party, and I talked my compassionate father into trading in my debutante party for a ticket to Switzerland to study with Francis Schaefer. And he, he said yes. It was great. Um, so I got on the plane. But here's something Schaefer said that I, I, I was about to experience. He says everyone must bow twice to Jesus. That we bow first as Savior, and then we bow to Jesus as Lord. And some of us do that simultaneously. And for some of us, there's some time um, when the demands of lordship kind of settle in. And we have to really make that decision that follows from receiving what the cross has done for us. And, and I, didn't, I didn't have any idea of the second part. So I got on the plane to Switzerland um, having bowed once. And I was engaged to a, um, a tall, dark, and handsome South American pilot whom I'd met um, as an exchange student, and, and we had our parents' blessing. He didn't know the Lord, and I didn't know it mattered that he didn't know the Lord. And I can remember it was an Icelandic prop plane, and we're landing in Reykjavik halfway. I don't know why that's halfway to Switzerland, but it is. And I was looking out the window, pitch black, and, I, and the Lord spoke to me in some sort of way that was very clearly not me. And, and what the Lord said was, it's him or me. And I thought, is that even legal? <laughs> you know, are you allowed to do that? Do you mean, did I, is that what I opened the door to? You know, when, when I opened the door to your saving love. What? I can't do that. I can't do that. And I'm not sure you should be able to ask me to. So I decided, brilliantly, that I was going to put Christianity on the back burner. But I was on my way to Labrie for the summer, so that wasn't too smart. Or it wasn't, you know, destined for success anyway. Um, And over the course of the summer... The saints that surrounded me really taught me and walked me through um, what it meant to have Jesus as Lord. Um, and so, uh, so I bowed to Jesus as Lord eventually. And I remember setting up, you know, a whole host of um, fleece 
because, you know, if you make this impossible, I mean, if you make this impossible thing possible, I'll do it. And if you, whatever. Anyway, I was getting, I was hitchhiking down the hill one day on my day off, and I, my fiancé was in South America, and I was in Switzerland, obviously, and, and just as I had one foot in the car, I looked down the road, and there was this familiar person walking up the road, um, and it was my fiancé who'd come halfway around the world from Bogota, Colombia, to this tiny little village in Switzerland to surprise me. And I thought, great, he's going to become a Christian. Then we're done. You know, that'll be good. We'll go back to plan A. And um, that did not happen. But I did, you know, I said, finally, well, if, you, if he says this and then whatever. Anyway, the Lord um, outsmarted me. And uh, so all of my fleece were resolved. And I eventually had to just bite the bullet and do it. And, um, and my fiancé left in the middle of the night. And um, I didn't see him for 17 years. And I thought, well, I'm, I went up to my room and I, I thought, I'm done with this. You know, I packed, packed my trunk and sat down on top of it. And I figured, I'm reading my Bible for the last time. I opened it. I put my finger in it. And, and it was in Jeremiah. And I thought, good, it's the Old Testament. I won't understand a word of it. <laughs> and, uh, and I, why had my finger on Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And in the back of my mind somewhere, I thought, somewhere in the world, there's a guy like Neil Labar who loves Jesus and I could love, you know, never thinking. But um, so uh, that was the end of that. So I suppose you could say that it was at the end of that summer that I really became a disciple bowing to Jesus as Lord in the actual plans of my life and how I lived it. Then, for me to bow to Jesus as Lord meant buck up and do the hard thing. And I think that's what it does frequently mean, taking up a specific cross, facing the death of something that's become too dear. But now, I see it somewhat differently with the perspective of years as well as recent events, I, I think I see bowing to Jesus as Lord in a slightly more nuanced way. I see also bowing to Jesus as Lord as receiving your life as God has allowed it to be. Receiving your life, all, every bit of your life, as God has allowed it to be. Maybe we could say forgiving God for the hard parts, the wounds. Listen to the writer of Ecclesiastes. He puts it in this way, characteristically cheerful way. I love Ecclesiastes. Accept the way God does things, for who can straighten what he has made crooked? Or, we're reading from the word, <laughs> Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times come, hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Hard times from God? Hard times from God. This is where we can debate all weekend. God is never the author of evil, but he does allow it. And he does use it to shape us 
And he can make even evil a part of our story and a part of his will for us. We can sort of fight about or sharpen one another. But I think I'm going to show that to you in the scriptures. And that's the way I understand Ecclesiastes. God allows hard things. And he has the will and the ability to shape us in them and also to make them good. Let me illustrate with another personal example. Um, This one, not ancient history. Um, Before I was born, my parents had two girls. One died of polio, and I was the replacement baby. Um, My parents were lost in grief. And those were before we went straight off to counseling. You know, they went to Florida for a few weeks and came back, and it was supposed to be over, but it wasn't. They, they kind of gave way to alcoholism and serious mental illness. And so living in that home was troublesome and mysterious to me. My sister, that surviving sister, who's seven years my elder, recently died. And in her home, I found a page that looked like this, just a page of yellow paper in my mother's hand. And it was a description of what it was like to survive the death of her nine-year-old child to polio. So she described the iron lung and the, the agony of the misinterpretation of the symptoms and why did they wait so long and the tracheotomy and thinking it was going to be better and so going out to lunch and coming back to greet my father who said, whispered simply, she's gone. She reflected a little bit on that. And then she said, and you're allowed to laugh at this. I mean, it's a sad story, but this, is, this really is funny. She said, a year later, we had another daughter, as everyone said we should. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> so, and then in pencil written above it, like she knew I'd be reading it 30 years later or whatever, um, was, and we're glad we did. <laughs> You know, it was like an afterthought, but I appreciated it. Um, This did two things for me. One, it gave me deep compassion for them as a mom, for what they went through, and explained, you know, the way I experienced my life. It validated my sense of my own childhood that there was really nobody there, you know, there was dad, there was mom, and they, they did the best they could. And they, and they knew the Lord on many levels, I think. But they were, they were gone. So it, it didn't make sense to me that, that I felt, you know, marooned. But I did. It was like there was nobody home. And suddenly I got it. I could tell from reading this. They'd checked out. They weren't going to bond with another child. It was too scary. What if they lost? You know, it explained a lot. But how sad. Here's what I saw. Here's what I saw. I saw that what that built in me as the parent of four children and bunches of grandchildren, and they loved Jesus, and God made something of our home that was life-giving, that that 
deficit gave me an enormous passion for what a home ought to feel like to the people who live there and what it ought to feel like to our brothers and sisters who come through the door. And we've had seasons of life where we had, you know, 40 young adults coming for dinner every Sunday night. And I cooked for them. I can't believe it ever happened and I could never do it again. But I mean, God did something incredible in our home that, that grew out of that crucible of everybody's suffering. And that's helpful to me to see. And I think that's part of what... Um, Part of what we're after in understanding this weekend, God takes no pleasure in the sorrow of a fallen world, but he, never, he was nevertheless present with me in it and redeemed it. The first name he's ever given in the scriptures is the God who sees. So he sees and he's ready to kind of weave it all um, into good for us. So, um, small plots and large plots. We're going to look at ways. How does God treat people? What are the ways of God? What are the trends that we can see about how he deals with us? And um, we'll look at some of our actual paths. You know, the small path, small p path, and then the large path of the scriptures. There was a time when, um, when our daughter graduated from uh, college. And we, the whole family was there. And we came home from... New Jersey to Florida in two cars. And we had a boy's car and a girl's car. And, um, and uh, we kind of met at the rest stops. And so Neil uh, and my son Peter, who was five at the time, got out of the car. And Peter said to me, uh, Dad told me a story while we were driving. And I said, well, that's nice. What story did he tell you? And he said, he told me the Bible. I said, come on. He told you the Bible? How long did it take him? He said, five minutes. So I, yeah, I was so horrified. Like I'd been a Christian for, you know, 30 years or something. I could never, ever have done that. So my daughter who just graduated from college, the two of us um, decided to figure out how to tell the story of the Bible to a five-year-old in five minutes. And we're going to all learn to do that this weekend. We're going to start right now. I'm watching my watch. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to see some things. Tonight, you're going to get the big overview, and I'm going to show you just one thread that goes through and leave you with kind of a person or a question to think of. But then we'll look at clo more closely at some of the stories on this timeline tomorrow and what they have to tell us about the way we experience our own stories, particularly our trials. Uh, but okay, are you ready? Um, here is uh, the story of the Bible to a five-year-old in five minutes. You think? Okay. Neil doesn't want me to do red. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, so, and you have this actually in your book. I hate giving it to people ahead of time because you look at it and just go to sleep. It's like, oh, uh, it looks like, you know, I don't know, a page from a textbook or something. I think, I think we can do this. Uh, so it's just there so you don't have to write. You can just pay attention to what's going on up here. Then there's another list there that says timeline takeaways. And throughout the weekend, we're going to be filling in 
things that we can see in this story that apply to the plan B-ness of our lives, okay? So, but first, the story of the Bible to a, for a five-year-old in five minutes. And the first one is beginnings. Tell you already, you're not going to be able to read my writing, but that's all right. And before we even say what beginnings is, we have to say that the story really starts before the beginning. Revelation talks about the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, which is where this story starts. And you were also seen and chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what the scripture promises. So, so it begins before the beginning, but we're starting with the beginning. And the beginning is the big stuff, all the huge global stories that kind of explain how we find ourselves in our world. So creation, we're accountable to God because he made it, put it in place. And then, and then we fell. Um, we rebelled. We believed that first lie. So actually there's plan A and plan B right there. Plan A in the garden and plan B when, when Adam and Eve believed the first lie that God didn't have their best interests at heart. And so they had to take matters into their own hands. So... Um, so, okay, so these are the big stories. The flood, Noah, and, and the Tower of Babel. And then we have a problem to solve, and it's all going to come down to one man. This is Abraham. Has a beard. And this is patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. These are the patriarchs. So God's going to have to solve the problem that happened at the fall. And he decides to do it through his promises to one man and that man's family. And they're singled out. And God deals with them in a particular way that's instructive for the rest of the watching world. So, okay, Abraham. And next comes... Yeah, um, how do we, how do we, how did I put this? Uh, I can't believe I'm, yeah, all right. What we say is, right, we'll say Joe takes him in and Mo takes him out. The, um, <laughs> the next one is Egypt, and this is Joe. You remember the story of Joseph, and we're going to look closely at it tomorrow because it's very instructive for us, but... Um, the favorite son of Israel is rejected by his brothers, betrayed, and um, becomes a slave, and he's taken into Egypt, and eventually his whole family follows him and is actually saved. Um, so Joe takes them in. They all go into Egypt, and they are good guys in the eyes of the Egyptians. But 400 years goes by, and nobody really cares much about Joe anymore. And on the scene comes Mo. Moses, whom God chooses to lead his people out of Egypt, and he said at the call of Abraham that this would take place, that, there would be, that the people would be enslaved for 400 years, and then they would be rescued. So Moses leads them out. The next one's the Exodus. And do they just spill out across the Red Sea and land in the Promised Land? No. The next one is the Wilderness. We're going to look fairly closely at that uh, Red Sea crossing tomorrow and also at the story of Joseph. But, okay, so there they are in the wilderness. And God meets with them in the wilderness, and he sees them through it, and he does many things to show them 
what sort of a God he's going to be when they get into the land that he says he's already picked out for them. Which can seem weird, like if you made the whole earth, why does he pick that place? Isn't that it? Why not Tahiti or something? You know, why Canaan? And, and just a little side note, they went from a place where they had lots of water to a place where if it didn't rain, they didn't live. They had to be, they were dependent on water. So think about that. God takes them deliberately to a place where they will be in need without him showing up. Interesting. Anyway, all right, so here... They're in the wilderness, and this is not McDonald's. God gives them the law. And the law defines them and God. It defines God's compassion. It defines him. And and he says to them, if you cling to the law, not only will you be my people, but you will begin to look like me. You'll take on my character, but you'll also reflect me to the watching world, and the world was watching. So the law is is really important. Then the next is conquest. They take the land that God gives them. Sometimes they don't really want to, but, um, uh, but they do. They take the territory, and then they say, we need to be ruled, and they're ruled by judges. And the way it works with the judges is the people cling to the law, then they decide to bag it. Then God uses their enemies to discipline them. He sends them a judge to get them back on the right track. They cling to the law for a while, then they decide to bag it. And it goes on and on and on like that. So this is Samson and Deborah and Gideon and all kinds of folks. Okay, so then they decide, we'll go over here, kings, we need a king. And so we have the kings ruling in Israel. And there were no good kings in the northern tribes, and eventually they get taken away by the Assyrians. And there are some good kings in the southern tribes, and so they kind of stay on this timeline. And um, during this time, the prophets are writing. And what are the prophets saying? The prophets are saying, hang on to the law. Hang on to the law. Don't let go of the law. If you let go of the law, you let go of your identity. And God lets go of you in this land. You've got to cling to the law. But they don't, really, ultimately. And so what happens is what he said would happen, which is that they're exiled. And they go into Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. And then they return. There's a wonderful scene where Daniel, in captivity, is reading the prophet Jeremiah, who's writing right here, and he's reading what's going to happen and when the deliverance will come, because it was all prophesied ahead of time, this many years, and, and and he realizes, wait a minute, we're in it. It's, you know, it's like, it's 70 years. And he begins to pray in to what was prophetically spoken. And I think there, there are lessons for us in that, um, in many ways, that there are things we can see, we'll talk about some of them tomorrow, that we need to be praying into. So they come back into the land, and if you were one of those exiles who came back into the land, and you'd been exiled because you had rejected the law, what would your, what would your big 
mission be once you got back? What would be your main concern? Hang on to the law. Yeah, don't let it go again. So what we call this is the period of Judaism. And what they did was they took this law and they made what's, what they called the rabbis called a hedge around it. They made it stricter. So the compassionate part of the law, like you don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, became you don't ever mix milk and meat. Because if you don't ever mix milk and meat, you'll never be in danger of not boiling a kid in its mother's milk, right? Or, um, you know, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath or tire yourself, so you're actually only allowed to do a certain Sabbath day's walk between, like, here and here, you know, and you can't walk any further than that on the Sabbath, just to make sure, 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 that you will never actually break the law. So it became rigid and stricter, and everything was invested in that rigid interpretation of the law, and it's into that situation that Jesus comes, the hope of all of history, the Messiah, a time of messianic expectation, and a time of obsessive clinging to the law, but not really this law. So here's an example that I love like of, of what's going on here. We see Jesus clashing, right, with the, the teachers of the law of his own day. And it's easy to misinterpret that and hear him being against this law. But about this law, he says, I fulfilled it. I fulfilled, I filled it full. So what he's railing against is this. And there's a wonderful example. This is my own interpretation. I didn't make it up. I heard it suggested, but I think it's great. Which is that um, you remember Jesus in Nazareth, and he gets up to read from the law, and he reads the prophecy about um, uh, the captives being released, and, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he puts it down, and he says, this scripture today has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it says they wanted to throw him off a cliff. You know, because who says that? It was a claim to be God. But it says he walked out from among them. And I'm just saying, I think, that, you know, they're getting ready to throw him off a cliff. And he just, like, walks a few steps further than the, you're allowed to walk on the, you know. Like, you know? I'm just saying. I think there's a possibility that that's what was... because. Because this is what he's opposing, this super rigid hedge around the law. And I hear the Sermon on the Mount, if you even hated your brother, you've killed him. Or don't even look at a woman lustfully as, as Jesus' take, his new hedge around the law, if you will. In other words, go deeper. It's not about being stricter. It's, about, it's a matter of the heart. Um, it's just wonderful when you kind of get a lens for the context of this story. So, okay, the first two things on your... Um, well, let me trace one more thing here. Because I want you to get an appreciation for it being one story with one author written through thousands of years, but one intelligence, 
one loving plan, and that same author is authoring your steps. And he has ways of working out his will, and looking at the story is going to be helpful to us. We're going to look in depth at some of them tomorrow. But let me just just give you one quickie. You should have two things you know, kind of already. One is that God knows the end from the beginning. And the second is that we're born into a war zone. We talked about that. We're born into a war zone. They fell here. And so for the rest of the plot line, we land on the planet in the middle of some kind of a battle. Okay? So now, let me just trace the idea of sacrifice really quickly. Just a little bit over a five-year-old level, but not much. What happens in the beginning? God says, I will be approached with a, with a blood sacrifice. A sacrifice is important. So Abel's sacrifice is accepted and Cain's is not. You remember the story. Cain has a perfect chance. God says, just do the right thing. You're not in trouble yet. Just do the right thing. And what's the right thing? Bringing a sacrifice. Why? Because God sets the terms. That's number three on your, on your takeaway list there. God sets the terms. He's the creator. He decides how he's to be approached. And does he not still? Do you get to make up your own form of, you know, I'll take a little yoga and a little Buddhism and a little this. And No, God sets the terms. Come to me. No one comes to the me. Come to me unless the Father draw him. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So, okay, blood sacrifice. Gets to, to Abe here, and Abe is asked to sacrifice his son. And what does God provide? A substitute, a ram. So, okay, a substitute sacrifice is, is provided. Then what happens in the Exodus? The substitute sacrifice, the blood covers the door, and there are some specifics about the sacrifice. It has to be perfect. No bones broken. Everyone in the family has to partake of that sacrifice, or they're not included in the covering of the blood. Have you ever heard the phrase, God has no grandchildren? You know, everyone has to partake. So there's a substitute sacrifice that's perfect. No bones broken. His blood causes us to be freed from death. Um, Then you get into the wilderness period in the law, and what happens on the Day of Atonement, which the Jewish community has just gone through? The substitute, two goats are brought, and one, the priest lays his hands on the goat. This is all prescribed in the law. This is a picture of the whole thing, because it's one God and one author. priest lays his hands on the lamb, or on the goat, and confesses the sins of the community over it. And then the lamb is slaughtered. And the other one is sent out into the wilderness. Okay? So the substitute perfect sacrifice of which we must partake is a sin-bearing sacrifice. And then you come to the prophets who say, The sin-bearing substitute sacrifice who frees you from death is going to be a person who bears your sins, who who comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, who's born in Bethlehem, and on and on and on, none of whose bones are broken, who's born of a virgin, a long list. So 
When John the Baptist sees Jesus walk over a Judean hillside and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To Jewish ears, it's like dominoes going from one end to the other, from then back to day one. Because God was able through all of it to weave his story and to provide for us. So um, God sets the terms and along the way, and this will really be our subject for tomorrow, are a lot of, let me say this, I borrow it from a, a devotional, Welsh devotional writer that I appreciate called Selwyn Hughes. He says, one of the ways of God is reveal, reverse, and restore. And how many stories along this timeline contain that? Reveal, reverse, restore. God reveals um, to Abraham that he's going to have a son, and then the reversal is you have to offer him up. Or... The Exodus, I'm going to deliver you. And where does he lead them? Right into a dead end with their enemies closing in behind. Calvary is the deepest reversal of all the hope that Jesus would be the promised Messiah. Jesus looks at this story, and you have this reference in, on, at the end of your page today, and says, this was all about me. Everything in the law and the prophets and the writing, the whole story is about Jesus. So we can look to it and say, what is there to learn? Let me just ask you one other question. I really hope this works. You're excluded and so are you. Who can name the uh, Hebrew midwives? That saved Moses. Yeah, that saved Moses. The Hebrew midwives that, that were ordered to kill the baby boys and didn't. Anybody? Phew. Oh, who said that? Uh, yes, give this woman an I owe you something. Hooray. Nobody ever knows the answer to that question. They were Shifra and Pua. And they're important to me because think about this. And again, this is not, you know, this is my fancy, but it's reasonable to say that um, the Hebrew midwives who took their lives in their own hands by not killing the baby boys, who do you think they probably saved? Who was one of those baby boys? Moses, the deliverer of Israel. And we don't even know their names. But surely God used their obedience to bring the one who was going to bring freedom to all of Israel. And think about what their lives felt like to them. If ever there was anybody who had a plan B life, they were slaves, they were threatened, and at the end of their lives, did they have a clue what it might have meant, what their obedience meant? Probably not. And yet, they're critical, they're important. Their lives meant something. And maybe we can't really, um, maybe it's the wrong question. Um, it certainly looked like a plan B life to them. 
So I want to end by holding them up to you. Their lives must have felt very plan B and seemingly their seemingly small and brave obedience, bowing to the way the Lord had allowed their lives to be, allowed them to step onto the timeline. You're on here. The next one is the return. And here we are, and it's just going to take obedience for us to step onto the timeline in the same way, despite our sorrows, if we see them in the right way. May God do such a work in our sorrows and our disappointments. May we take our place on the kingdom timeline. And um, we'll look closely at some of these stories tomorrow. They have a lot to teach us. But let me just leave you with this question. Talk about it with each other and praise the Lord for whatever you think of as you're going to sleep. Is there a, a moment in your life or a time in your life when you would have changed the script for anything if you'd been permitted to and you're glad now that you couldn't? I want us to take a really long view of the things we suffer and get some traction in um, living with hope. So I'm, I'm going to close. Neil, would you close us in prayer? Thank you. Do you want my little ear thing? No, I'm good. I got it. Let's pray. Father, you know the end from the beginning. And you give us day-by-day -day choices to trust you and follow you. We pray that we'd have a confidence in your good purposes, even in the hardest of times. And we ask for uh, courage and joy that we can relinquish a complete understanding of our lives to you and know that out of your mercy, you have a good future for us in eternity. Help us to live that out day to day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.